everyone, and welcome to CIRA Week Conversations. My name is Edurne Zocco, an Executive Director of Clean Energy Te Technology at IHS Market, and the topic of our CIRA Week Conversation today is Financing a Just Transition to Sustainable Energy. I'm joined today by Francesco La Camera, General Director of the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA. Welcome, Francesco. Welcome, thank you. Thank you. I'm very thrilled to have the opportunity to have this conversation today. And I also have the big pleasure to be joined today by Jan Lovker, Global Head of Natural Resources at HSBC. Welcome, Jan. Thank you, Adorno. Before we jump into the discussion, maybe worth a brief comment from my side to set the background for this conversation panel. Why are we here today talking about financing a just transition to sustainable energy and why you, the audience, should be interested? The transition to sustainable energy or low carbon energy is one of the biggest challenges faced by humankind. Effectively replacing an industrial system invented over two centuries ago with a whole new decarbonized system in such a short space of time, like 30 years, is an immense challenge. Driven by this urgent need to combat climate change, the world committed last year to more than $500 billion in decarbonization projects for the first time. And more than half of this money was invested in renewable energy generation. This seems to be great news, but the numbers are still far below what is required, according to very recent report. So what is going to be needed to reach, or at least to get as close as possible to this 1.5 degrees scenario? There is agreement that we will need to have first an acceleration of existing annular carbon technologies, second, extensive deployment of low carbon technologies to displace some of the carbon intensive generation infrastructure, and third, diverse financial schemes and programs involving both the public and the private sector. However, fourth, there is an additional challenge to reach the 1.5 degree scenario, and is that decarbonization needs to take place both in developed countries as well as in emerging economies, which are projected to have most of the new energy capacity additions in the next 30 years. So how is this transition going to be financed in emerging economies and what will be the most effective instruments? So this is the topic in a nutshell of today's conversation. So I'm going to start uh, with you, Jan. And um, it is clear uh, that the transition to greener energy is gathering pace with renewables proving particularly attractive to investors. But in your view, uh, would you, would you think or would you agree that there are enough uh, investment, enough billions flowing yet to make a meaningful difference? Well, I appreciate that we all want to see change happen faster. And so when we don't feel it's happening fast enough, we're all trying to figure out where's, uh, where's the bottleneck. I would say, though, overall, and this is speaking across uh, uh, developed and developing markets, but perhaps more so even to develop markets at this stage, I would actually argue that generally speaking, there is an excess of capital for the opportunity set. So society in totality has decided to allocate significant amounts of capital to the transition agenda, but it just takes time for the industry to absorb that capital and also to provide new uh, high quality opportunities for um, the takedown of that capital. That's a little bit less of a pressing quality issue in, in uh, developing markets, I accept that. But I would say net-net, there's a lot of capital available. 
So if I'm hearing you right, I mean, it's kind of like you are saying that at this moment, there is uh, maybe maybe even more uh, money appetite driven by ESG to invest, but maybe not that many uh, good projects to invest or like uh, projects that are interesting to capital. Am I hearing you right? I, I would say so as an overall observation globally. Yes, I would say that there, that we are actually compared to other energy forms, we are very capital long at the moment. The issue is people are trying to find the right distribution channels into the right projects uh, for uh, the right risk return pr uh, prospects. I would even argue that in some cases, we're still not quite sure what is the right risk reward around renewables. Let's not forget, most of this, these industries didn't exist in scale five, 10 years ago. Uh, so when you compare it to other energy sectors where we have much more track record to determine risk reward and much more ability to analyze uh, the technologies uh, and the technology uncertainties, um, this is a sector that is still very much emerging and I would argue somewhat led by capital. So my next question is for you, Francesco. There is a lot of discussion about 2030 versus 2050 targets. And lots of the targets recently announced look at 2050 or even 2060, but analysts and institutions like yourself affirm that this decade, the 2020s, uh, is basically the most crucial in terms of renewable investments and deployment if we really want to reach the 1.5 year scenario. So um, in your views, what, what, what is the target? What should be the target uh, in, the, in this decade in order to reach uh, the, the 1.5 year scenario? So uh, concerning uh, our goal for the 2030 and 2050, I think the, the, the first is to be coherent with what the IPCC said, to maintain uh, the a path that is compatible with the 1.5 uh, degrees. This means that we have two degrees uh, to compare to the uh, pre uh, Industrial Revolution sign, 45% less CO2 emission by 2030. And then we have to go carbon neutral to uh, 2050. And for, uh, for following this path, we have uh, present our scenario, where it's very clear that we need a, a, a profound electrification of the energy system. So from the uh, around 20% of today to more than 50% in 2050, we need to have a, a presence in the renewable the electrification that could go from the 25% of today to the 90% in 2050. We have to make clear how, when you call about energy in general, we have to, to, to reverse the actual ratio between uh, fossil fuel renewables. We are one third, two thirds, less uh, than one third today. We have to go to around 70%, 2050 renewables and 30% the other the other way to produce energy. So what we think is that, that uh, in the future, the uh, system will be based largely on renewables, complemented by green hydrogen, hydrogen and especially green hydrogen and sustainable biomass. So these are the steps going to the around 40% renewables and then 90% in, 20, in 2050 concerning the electrification and the similar uh, path for concerning the role of renewables uh, into the uh, complete energy system. Okay. So Jan, let me get back back to you. Um, so from from your view, from from uh, from a financial uh, perspective, 
what is the most critical in order to warranty that money flows to renewables and other clean tech investments in emerging economies? Because you were saying before, yes, there is capital, there is a lot of appetite, but you know, not all the channels are equally equally served. So from your perspective, what is the most uh, uh, critical to warranty? Sure. So I, I think there are a couple of different things that in aggregate will facilitate uh, distribution of capital into developing economies for renewables. First of all, there needs to be some, uh, there would benefit from being some sort of standardization around what is a, uh, and, and validation process around what is a renewables project and is it really a credible renewables project or is there a high degree of uh, greenwashing or otherwise embedded in the project. That might not be, I should say, a, an issue specific to the developing markets, but I think if, if the developing markets can get that right early, it will facilitate uh, capital coming in faster. Um, we at HSBC have taken initiatives with partners around trying to create such standardizations, for example, by creating the FAST infra uh, label, which effectively is a way whereby uh, there's a validation of the credentials of a, a project um, as being a renewables or a transition uh, valid project, which therefore, if you create broad understanding of that uh, label, allows capital from non-developing markets and developing markets to flow into projects faster. The, the second thing I think, which is not specific to renewables, but it's a general comment about capital flows, um, if we look at other energy sectors, for example, over 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what we find is that capital that comes from a region tends to assess a project with the lowest cost of capital compared to capital from, quote, global capital markets. And so in an ideal world over time, uh, what we would have developed within renewables in the same way as has developed around um, the, the, um, the, the oil and gas sector over time is local pools of capital, regional pools of capital investing into regional projects because they generally tend to price most aggressively at the lowest cost of capital. I think, I think there is a, a third element which probably comes, comes first though, which is that you would hope that capital in the global markets uh, will look at renewables projects, um, and this is maybe me being a, a bit optimistic, but will generally look at renewables projects wherever they might be in the world and be reminded that carbon is border neutral um, and therefore doesn't itself get hindered by borders by virtue of placing significant country risk around, um, around uh, renewables projects wherever they might be. Because of course, uh, once that happens, the cost of capital flowing from international and global capital markets into developing markets uh, will rise quite materially. Okay, so we are going to switch gears here a little bit and uh, talk a bit about COP26 that uh, concluded uh, last November and there was such a big uh, noise around it and I know that Francesco and Irina were were central uh, in the in, in this uh, in this event. So I'd like to hear a bit your views, Francesco, and uh, about uh, the key takeaways that you took from from the summit and what were the most important commitments uh, that came out from the summit, as well as what you think is the most needed and should be prioritized next. 
So uh, concerning the COP, uh, I always said that the COP was already a success before starting. Uh, you know, this COP was uh, particularly important because uh, it was signing the five years periods where a country has been asked to present uh, a revised and more ambitious NDCs. And this, in fact, happened. Uh, ARENA was also part of this game because we have supported more than 17 countries in presenting their NDCs so that the country finally they can also own their NDCs, not like uh, five years uh, before when uh, towards Paris, sometime in the NDCs were just the work of consultants. Now it's the work of government. And this is a very good sign. And uh, we have also seen uh, uh, from the high level dialogue on energy in New York feeding the COP26 is increasing uh, ambition presented by, by, by countries. So we have heard about this uh, collaboration between US and China. We heard about commitment to 2050 to 26 from China, but all also country committing not to investing more on coal uh, abroad. And finally, we have also uh, this uh, ambiguous uh, language, but it's very important when you said that we are going to uh, lower it down for carbon, that is important in my point of view. So uh, we have a more explicit uh, support for developed countries. Uh, we have attention to the methane new initiative. So we have seen that a growing attention, a good momentum for coming from COP26. So what is important to note is that uh, uh, always one thing are the commitments, uh, other things is to get the commitment, commitment into the reality. So I think that uh, uh, also the, the future COP, they, in some way they have to abandon the negotiation mood because there is not any more uh, much uh, to negotiate. We have the agreement, so we have the, the, all the uh, rules in place. So now we have to concentrate on implementation. So to make the commitment become a, a reality. And we hope that this will be a suggestion that we are uh, providing for the next presidency, the Egyptian one, and also the, the, the UAE one that will, will uh, where the COP will take place in the, the, the country that is hosting Irene. Uh, so if I can say in a word is passing from commitment to action, to negotiation mode, to implementation mode, and having more participation of the stakeholders and the, the private sector. I think this is also important, not only governments, but also the chance to have a, a more private sector into the, the, the events, more, more uh, how to say, uh, participant in a more active way to the work of, uh, of the next COPs. So if I hear you right, basically we are moving into a next phase where you know everybody is on the same page that this needs to be done and it's urgent, it's, it's, it's a very salient topic and now it's more about what can be the biggest challenge when implementing and what could be facilitators uh, of, of, of you know, facilitators to reduce these challenges, basically incorporating more, more, more sector from, from the private, more, more uh, collaboration from the private sector. Uh, what do you anticipate as the biggest challenges in the before the next before the next meeting in this new phase. So naturally, it depends on the actors will mm -hmm. interpret their roles. And I can say what Arena is uh, is doing. We have opened for all the areas that are relevant for the energy transition, for the green hydrogen, for the actual renewables into the energy system, uh, to the just transition. We are opening this collaborative framework where the government and the private sector can work together. 
and I think this is relevant. We have launched uh, a, initiatives like the, the Climate Investing Platform together with UNDP, C4ROL in collaboration with the Greenman Fund. We now we have, uh, uh, we have uh, launched in the COP26 the, uh, the new facility, the Energy Transition Facility with the Abu, Dhabi, the Abu Dhabi Fund for Development. And with the first strong contribution from the, from the EU, if we want, we can talk about this uh, later more, more in detail. So we have to create the mode and uh, uh, everyone has to do his part and to be coherent uh, with the outcome of, uh, of the COP26. So, so the major challenges are in our capacity to work on this aspect. Another piece of work that I think is relevant that we as uh, agencies, we have all work having uh, paying attention to the global landscape. Now it's more relevant to concentrate in a, in a more regional approach. Uh, we, with the European Commission, we are present to the high-level dialogue in New York, so to the COP26, then after, uh, a new initiative to have a regional outlook for all the 14 regions of, uh, of ARENA. And I think this will be important. This is very, uh, very well appreciated by the multifinancial institutions. We now we have 300 partners in our climate investment platform. We are collecting now more than 270 projects, and we are working to assess the bankability of this project to feed the the work of Jan, possibly, if it's possible, to facilitate his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his work. So many initiatives that, uh, at least from our, our, our point of view, we are trying to put together. I think other uh, actors will do the same and, uh, with different circumstances. But it is important we finally may, may build regional outlook or domestic outlook for the biggest country like India, Indonesia, China, the European Union, they, they already made that and they are working also on, uh, on it. To have a more clear picture for the investors, where are the priority, where are the costs, where are the difficulties. And uh, we have always made clear in our outlook how important are policies for making things happen. Working on the legal environment, we're working on the practical aspects. And uh, naturally, the assistance, so the technical assistance, the capacity building, all this uh, have to go together in line with, uh, with uh, the outcome of COP26 to reach the Paris Agreement goals. Yeah, so a global view but re with a regional approach uh, focus. Um, I want to switch again a bit focus. And, and this is about, it seems to me that when we came out from the first year of the pandemic, um, there was a big push from companies and we saw so many government announcements around net zero. Um, but in the last months uh, where we are seeing, you know, the current fuel crisis, volatility, high electricity prices, especially in some, uh, in some regions like, like Europe, um, I'm not sure to, to, to you, somebody might have the feeling that, uh, you know, these efforts uh, seem to be a bit tamed down um, at the moment. So I'd like to ask Jan, if do you uh, agree uh, with this, uh, with this comment that, uh, you know, or this is something mostly um, triggered by short term reaction to market imbalance, or is this something that you think is going to stick uh, in the mind of policymakers and corporations and most importantly here in the case of the financial community. What are your views on this? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very topical. We, we saw gas pack prices in, in Europe just before Christmas, you know, blow out to something like eight standard deviations beyond anything that has ever been seen before. 
Uh, and, you know, I'm sure no politician is particularly keen to uh, have to deal with voters who don't have their, their um, gas supply on in the middle of winter. Um, my personal view on this is that, uh, first of all, the transition, I mean, it's, it's, it's here to stay and it's uh, the glide path, the overall average glide path in terms of where we're heading uh, is here to stay. And yes, there will be, uh, some may call them bumps in the road along the way, but the reality is that I think events like we've seen in the past few months with volatility around energy prices, what that it will do is it will enhance the understanding, maybe not short term, but hopefully medium to long term, will enhance the understanding amongst policymakers and also, frankly, capital providers as to the nuanced nature of the transition. It isn't as simple as, excuse the, the, the pun, uh, flicking the switch from one day from coal to, to uh, renewables. It is a, it, the hint is in the word, it is a transition and, and, and it will take time. Um, what I do on fear as well, or I do think is, is going to have to be expected is that as, you, as we make this transition and it is one of the biggest uh, changes in our global economy, I would argue, possibly even since Second World War, uh, as we make that transition, what we are going to find and people and policymakers are going to have to deal with and supply chains and so forth are going to have to deal with is increased volatility around every single commodity class, uh, whether that's power prices, whether that's gas prices, uh, whether that's copper prices and other necessities to, uh, you know, metals that are necessary for purposes of facilitating the transition because the supply demand dynamics will be less known because they're changing. And so volatility will arise. Um, but to get back to the, the nub of your question, I am hopeful that policymakers will see through this, notwithstanding short-term headlines in newspapers and whatnot. I, I'm hopeful they will see through it. Um, and if anything, they will see more clearly uh, after they've gone through these types of volatility of which I do expect quite a few more in the upcoming years. So as a follow-up question, do you think this, uh, the current uh, situation uh, in, the, in the energy markets um, may have, may slow down the energy transition and drive additional investment towards conventional? On the contrary, this is actually going to show that a solution needs to be found, found uh, even faster and will drive even additional investment towards uh, I, I mean, it's a little bit of a question of, um, you know, what, what, what will traffic be like on a Saturday when everyone's going off to go shopping? I, I, I think the reality is that when the types of organizations that are actually required to execute on the transition, right? So in other words, the folks who actually have to build offshore wind farm projects, they typically don't uh, start and stop their metaphorical car. Uh, once they start, they kind of have to move forward with these massive multi-billion dollar complex engineering projects. And I also think within uh, the universe of, of, of corporates that actually have to execute uh, on the transition, there is an understanding. And frankly, I'd argue many of them had the foresight and were saying for a long time that this kind of volatility was bound to come. And I'd argue many of them have been saying it for quite a while. 
And mm -hmm. so I, I, I think for those who actually have to make the capital allocation decisions to pursue the transition within the corporate world, I don't think it's as big a shock and surprise as, as perhaps it gets portrayed uh, in the conventional press and in, 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 in popular imagination. So, um, Francesco, next question is, is for you, and it is a bit related to your previous comments about the work that IRENA is doing to try to involve different stakeholders. So maybe uh, you can explain a bit, you know, what kind of activities uh, your institution is taking, uh, is taking, uh, is developing in order to, to further promote uh, renewables investment in emerging economies. Uh, what kind of financial schemes or programs you are working on that could be interesting uh, to the audience if you if you allow me i i, I wish also to 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 comment on the, sure. the previous question so that's uh, and then i will try to 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 link with what we're doing we're just trying to 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 give the right information first of all uh because uh you know when we talk about volatility uh i drive my car now for 14 years more or less. And uh, many times I, I went to buy the petrol for my car. The price was going down in different parts of the year. So the volatility of uh, gas is not just linked to the energy transition, it's linked to the fossil fuel world, first of all. And uh, we have seen in the last two years how also under the, the, the impact of the pandemic, we have seen how the installer capacity of renewables has been growing and the installer capacity of fossil fuels is declining. Last year, 80% of new installer capacity was coming from renewables. It's eight years that renewables are outpacing fossil fuel added capacity and the zero is going year after year. And we are also, uh, we wish to, to, to wait a little bit, but we, we, we know from the trend that it's going also this year will be a record year. Last year, the increase was 50% on the previous year. So it was amazing. So the energy transition is there. There is another element is that because of the pandemic, we had the strongest intervention of the state in the economy. And all the actors want to profit from that. This will create a naturally a, a certain degree of pressure on the prices. And so I think that Jan is correct and say that we will see this volatility uh, stay with us for a certain period. But the true trend that uh, is, is there and is unstoppable is going for a energy transition uh, dominated by, by renewables. And as I told at the beginning, complemented by green hydrogen, hydrogen especially green and the biomass. So, Sending this message very clear is, is important. We have seen uh, as this message 10 years ago was considered a niche or just a dream. Now all the agencies are accepting this scenario. And just in the last uh, few months, uh, with this intervention of the state of economy, we see other technologies that seem to, to, to find space. And uh, on this, uh, another message that we are trying to spread and you say this on the beginning, that this decade will be decisive. Anything, any technologies that will have not an impact in the next decade will be not useful to fight climate change. 
So the late we will go to this, the less we have the chance to be successful on climate change. So again, the, 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 the most important uh, action that we are taking is that uh, as uh, I anticipate responding to your question, is to provide this outlook be more uh, close to the reality of the regions so that we can really tailor uh, the, 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 the policy that uh, could be necessary for making the, the energy transition accelerating, making clear what are the priority, the cost and the benefit. You know that Arena is famous for its socioeconomic analysis. So also the impact of the energy transition on job, GDP and, uh, and other. The other is, uh, uh, as anticipated, uh, uh, working on projects. And now it's, uh, it's uh, amazing how many projects we are receiving through our digital platform, how many they are coming to our offices. You know, uh, we have already a success assess uh, uh, on quarter of the project that's been presented. They would think they are uh, bankable. So we really ask Jan to consider how they can join uh, the ETAF because other actors are joining. There is not only the Abu Dhabi Fund for Development, the UAE, they are committed $400 million, but we are also looking to this Asian Infrastructure Bank. We are looking to some development agency they want to join. I think that we can join directly or we can work on projects, but really this is a reality that may change a little bit the, the, the context, especially in Africa. We, are, we invested the last year only the 2% of renewables investment were in Africa last year. And now we have project for any area of, uh, of, uh, of Africa. So if I can conclude on this, to, 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 we are trying to work all around the uh, cycle of the planning of the project. So provide the scenario, priority, cost, and uh, policies, and then from this also trying to transfer this into the ground to the technical assistance to build the projects that are, uh, are there, assessing the project, working with the development bank, development agency, and naturally we will work on much working with the bank award that Jan represent here today. Thank you, Francesco. I don't know, Jan, if you want to make any further comment? Uh, well, I, I hadn't uh, expected to be pitched on an opportunity like this at uh, this stage, but uh, it's uh, intriguing and uh, we will review it. So um, before we wrap up, a final question to, to both of you. And um, so, I mean, the situation in emerging markets is especially difficult because um, these are economies where the, there is an ever increasing energy consumption, right, which makes it very difficult to move away from fossil fuels and conventional energy without uh, jeopardizing the energy system. And as a matter of fact, we are seeing renewables growing, solar being the most installed energy source for the last few years. But still, when you look at the big energy picture, we see that conventional energy consumption that still grows year over year, which, you know, considering the uh, global climate and all the uh, uh, push towards uh, climate change is kind of, uh, is kind of, uh, contradictory to, to, to some extent. So the final question to both of you is, what is in your view or what would be in your view the single action, the single action or factor that could be taken to accelerate the transition to sustainable energy or renewables in uh, emerging markets? And the biggest challenge. Um, look, I think the development of distribution channels 
by which I mean mechanisms by which equity and debt can get to projects and projects can get to equity and debt from global and, as I said earlier, regional markets um, is probably, the, from it, speaking as a, as a financial person, probably the single biggest impediment uh, at the moment that I see. Uh, and the, those distribution channels in turn, as I said right at the beginning, will look for ways in which to get comfort around the true credentials of these types of projects. And secondly, we'll also look for ways to get comfort around consistency of policy. I didn't mention that earlier, but uh, it perhaps goes without saying that consistency of the policy framework within which these businesses operate will be critical. I don't know what you think, Francesco. Well, you are absolutely right. So it's also very important that uh, we follow coherently the outcome of the COP26. So that there is not uncertainty from a political point of view. And all the solution has to be tailored to the country. For example, in Southeast Asia, the lands regulation sometimes are the, the most important obstacle because you have to deal with so many owners of the land. It's very difficult to go on the avenue project. In other reality, it's the currency risk. In other countries, the security risk. So uh, it's necessary to tailor solution for all different, uh, uh, to say, uh, situation. So that's, uh, but the, the key is to maintain clear uh, the path so that the policies is not following the, the, the uncertainty coming from the push of the moment, as uh, Jan has been uh, say very clearly in his previous intervention. If, it, if the policy maintain the, the, the pathway that uh, we, we are following, uh, I think that will be, we will be successful and we have to work on the single reality Try to be there and find solutions, trying to make the meetings like the COP, the, the moment where we can really assess where the barriers are still there, what are the solutions, showcase the good example. So making this continue work on the implementation going on and on until all the uncertainties will go away and the new future energy system will be more precisely there as uh, is already in our mind. Well, I want to thank uh, both of you, Jan and Francesco, for your time and for your insights in this conversation that, that we just had. And from my side, just a very uh, short concluding thoughts. Today, we talk about the big challenge of accelerating and financing the energy transition. And there was a clear agreement that there is a big push and momentum from international organizations and the financial community to reach uh, or get as close as possible to the 1.5 scenario. However, the road, as Jan said, uh, is not going to be easy. We'll see some bumps and we still seem to lack all the mechanisms and processes and we specifically discuss standardization uh, that are required to reach uh, this goal. Uh, getting the technology cheap is one thing, but then we still need to be deployed through the global economy to displace carbon intensive generation infrastructure. And this is still being a, a big challenge. Um, what is clear is that the role of leading institutions like HSBC or IRENA with significant mandates and targets in these markets will be create 
will be critical to create and monitor the most effective instruments to maintain the right level of capital flow and these channels to emerging economies and make possible that we finance a just transition to sustainable energy. This ultimately means that all regions have fair access to financing schemes and achieve their energy growth targets with no regions lagging behind in the, in, the, in the energy transition. Thank you to the audience for listening to this conversation and thanks again to our speakers. We hope to see you again very soon in Houston at Sierra Week 2022. Thank you and goodbye.